0: no sales or more sales, learning should never stop. That's why you and I are here. Bringing you Limitless, a maverick podcast channel with perfectly blended sales and marketing tips. Tips from people who've been there and done that. Put on your headsets, earphones or AirPods, because we are going for a heck of a sales hack ride. Hey all, welcome to another episode of our Limitless podcast series. I'm Nisha, a product marketer at Hippo Video and your podcast host. We have with us today, Nate Nazrilla. Hey Nate, welcome to Limitless.
1: Hey Nisha, thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, It's great to have you here, the pleasure is all ours. So Nate is the progenitor of a new school of sales thought, which is selling with buyers and not for them or at them. He is the creator of a number of tried and tested frameworks that sales reps can use to enable their champion prospects to sell internally. Nate is also the co-founder of Fluent.io, a seller enablement platform for sales reps to collaborate with their champions, speak the language of the business they're selling to and close deals with greater confidence and effectiveness. Today, Nate will share his expertise on buyer enablement and how sales reps can use it to their advantage. All right, so on to the questions and this is a pretty basic question for you, I guess. Uh, so we're all familiar with sales enablement What exactly is buyer enablement?
1: Yeah, so buyer enablement is built on the idea that sales reps don't close deals, buyers do. Because if you look at all of the make or break moments that happen in the sales process, typically they're happening during an internal conversation in the buying team when the sales rep isn't even in the room. And so buyer enablement comes down to this question of, one, have I built a committed champion in the deal? Um, who will be there in those internal conversations with their own team? And then two, have I enabled them with a clear and a compelling message and the materials to support it so that they can, well, keep the deal on track, <laughs> keep it from blowing up during those conversations that again, uh, reps aren't in the room for.
0: Right. And I think the pandemic work from home, remote working, whatever we've called it, has kind of uh, you know made it more necessary uh, Most definitely. Yeah,
1: yeah, but more necessary. And um, at the same time, more, you know, more possible because a lot more of the review process is happening asynchronously. A lot more yeah. written materials, for example, um, are shared during re- the review or the evaluation process on the buyer side. So yeah, I, I very much agree.
0: Okay, here's my next question. So convincing a prospect to, you know, trust you or even to listen to you was hard enough. How do you get them to champion you to their team or to their leaders? Uh, you know, does the communication style, tone, et cetera, differ here?
1: Yes. So definitely. Well, one, what I would say is just a baseline starting point is there has to be some type of direct incentive for that champion. There has to be something in it for them that ties them to the deal. It could be maybe a problem that's impacting a certain Um, metric that they are personally responsible for and is tied to their compensation plan, right? That's a very easy one. They could be looking for a path to a promotion there. There could be so many other reasons why that champion wins if you win by closing the deal. And if that's not there, then it's going to be very difficult to do anything else like build up um, a sense of trust that you're truly somebody that can help teamwork that they're better off with you than without you transparency, like they don't have anything to hide, they'll bring you in and give you the full story, Um, rapport of like that feeling of, man, this person just really gets me, they understand me in a way that others don't. So those are all elements that go into building that connection with the champion. And in a way that they're actually going to want to help you with the deal. But that's all built on top of that foundation of incentive.
0: Okay., uh, so at what stage of the sales process uh, do you try to get your prospect to transition from you know being just a prospect to a champion?
1: So it's- it starts from the very first conversation. Okay. Um, right? you are you are building a champion. Um you don't just find them <laughs> in the deal yeah. throughout the sales <laughs> cycle, right? You have to create them and you have to build them, which starts from the first conversation. Um, however, there is a point where you transition into testing the champion to try to figure out, okay, have I truly built Mm -hmm. the champion, um, enough? And so ways that you might test the champion, for example, you might assign, um, some action items that are value added to them to see if they actually follow through could be calling a customer reference as an example. And obviously that's going to come a little later in the cycle. After a couple of conversations, you've aligned on the problem you've established and figured out, okay, what's in it for them. And then you start to layer in some of these tests um, later on.
0: All right. Okay. So, all right. So after you've turned your prospect into your champion, how do you work with them to, you know, craft that sales journey? What resources do you need to equip, it, equip them with so that, uh, you know, they can pitch you effectively to their team, you or your service? or your product? Yeah.
1: So one of the, one of the first things um, that you will start building with the champion is your business case or mm-hmm. an executive summary, a value story. There are kind of different words for it, but basically it's the message of like, why would other people inside their company care about this? And especially as it relates to the executive or the quote economic buyer, the decision maker, or, you know, plural decision makers in the deal, you mm-hmm. have to build out some type of message that summarizes what the problem is, why it's costing them something, why that should be prioritized. Um, why once solved, there's a payoff or some type of outcome that relates to um, their job, their metrics, their incentives, right? And so that is the first thing that you're building up that storyline so that that champion has a good message and it'll be done in written form, kind of memo format, some type of summary that allows them to speak to it or to guide them when you're not around and you're, you're sharing. So that's the first piece. Um, Now, second, I'm happy to kind of go into some other types of materials and things that happen later in the sales cycle, things like uh, mutual Mm -hmm. action plans or um, joint evaluation plans. But where it starts is back to this this first idea of the message of why others around the company should care.
0: Okay. So this is the first idea that they'll pitch to their team, the memo or the executive summary.
1: Exactly. Um, Which all starts with the problem. (laughs) Products Mm -hmm. are only valuable in the context of a problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, makes absolute sense. And so, how effective do you think videos are in, um, you know, buyer enablement or asynchronous selling in general?
1: So uh, effective in the sense that they allow you to put some emotion and humanity behind mm-hmm. what you're doing, because so much of the uh, the product feature kind of um, heavy me talk track. All comes down to actually let me start over. Can, can you cut this one piece? I want to, I want to give you a more thoughtful response here.
0: No, that's fine. Yeah. It's, let's keep it natural.
1: <laughs> okay. Just
0: do whatever comes to your mind. It's okay.
1: I would say video is effective in the sales process because it it allows you to put a face behind the product. There's more humanity and you can build a genuine connection, especially with people that you know you may not have spoken yet. Um, too. For example, we've talked about this idea of the champion getting yeah. um, an executive or another decision maker involved. And so when they bring your message to them, when they can see some of the spark and the personality behind the message as well and form a connection, they're more likely to say, okay, I'll take 15, 20, however many minutes and go go join the conversation with this person.
0: Right. Yeah. So it's the next best thing to, uh, I think, a face-to-face meeting or over. Yeah. Yeah, Zoom.
1: Um, doesn't matter. And of course, they can they can see it on their own time to decide yeah. if okay, I want to schedule something and slot it into the calendar so that we're showing up one on one, more synchronously.
0: Awesome. So, how effective is you know buyer enablement in shortening the sales cycle? Because I think long sales cycles is one major problem plaguing sales trips, right? Oh, very much so. Time and resources. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, one of the um primary differences between the perspectives of sales enablement and buyer enablement. Sales enablement is all about um, more effective interactions with your sales reps. And if you look at the amount of time that a buyer will spend engaging with sales reps versus engaging with their own team, obviously it's significantly greater. Um, Think about all of the touch points or interactions that a champion will have with their executive Mm -hmm. throughout the week. Versus their ability to get an executive to commit time to show up to a sales meeting with the rep. And if if you are only relying on the latter meetings with the rep, it's going to be challenging early to get a lot of that momentum and, you know, fast, short feedback loops and lots of um, kind of tightly calendared interactions. But by enabling the buyer with a message when the sales rep isn't there, then you can begin to speed up some of those discussions and help the champion interact and engage with the executive. Um, Again, in in times that may already be scheduled, um, standing conversations internally. So it compresses some of the length in between interactions in the sales cycle.
0: Awesome. Okay, so uh, this is, uh, you know, I'm deviating a little from buyer enablement here, but uh, do you have a cold call framework that works to keep your prospects engaged throughout the conversation? Like, uh, you know, you start with something and then you move on to something and end with something else.
1: So to be honest, I don't do a lot of cold calling and it's, oh, it's okay. maybe, maybe a funny thing, <laughs> but most of my outreach in my career has been over email and LinkedIn. And I just, I never really um, mastered the cold call and I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't consider myself a cold calling expert. Fun fact, the last time I made a cold call was over a decade ago.
0: Yeah, that's surprising. Okay. All right. In that case, an email framework and a cold email framework. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure. Yes. When, when I'm uh, thinking about a cold email, um, first thing that I want to do is is tie some type of observation mm-hmm. to a short problem statement that makes somebody feel like I just read their mind. Like, oh my gosh, how did you know that was going on? Um, followed up by some type of question that leads to curiosity, because what I'm optimizing for is just a response to start a conversation. And so those are kind of the very like three basic parts um, of the cold email. I'm also a big fan of um, mid funnel emails and frameworks, you know, all the way on down for email through the rest of the sales cycle. But that's where I'd start at the top of the funnel.
0: Okay, and uh, I believe this would involve a fair bit of research right before you send a cold email since you um, started with, you know, there should be a person receiving your email should be surprised that you've read their mind. So you must have done quite a bit of research before sending that email.
1: Yeah, well, and it's it's two pieces, right? It's like the classic relevance versus personalization type yeah. debate. Um, I, I think they work together. You need an and. It's not an either or type question. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the oh my gosh, they must've read my mind is more on the relevant side, actually. Meaning you understand this problem in their space so well mm-hmm. that by sharing what's going on with other customers, the things that you're solving for them, they're like, yes, that is my problem too. And that is more on the relevant side to mm-hmm. um, smart targeting a very defined customer persona Versus on the personalization side, the way that I think about that is um, I have a thing that I would teach my teams called the weird test. And the weird test is if this email ended up in somebody else's inbox, would it feel mm. totally weird because you're referencing something so personal to that one prospect mm. that when you combine that with relevance, it's very powerful. And those two things work together to boost replies. Yeah,
0: so nowadays a lot of Emails are automated, right? Like you just use an automation tool, create a sequence and just buy your emails. So how do you strike the balance between automation and personalization?
1: So part of it comes down to your market. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are selling to a named account list of 50 enterprises total versus a highly transactional SMB sale, Um, with thousands and thousands of accounts. Obviously, the answer is going to be different here. You do Mm -hmm. have to lean more heavily on relevance and automation than personalization, whereas the scales tip in the favor of personalization and removing automation um, when you go to the enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. For most teams, there's going to be some type of, of balance in between. And oftentimes how that balance looks is leaning more heavily into the personalization on the first touch point and then repurposing some of that research either later so you're not constantly um, doing fresh fresh research to personalize or um, you are referencing that one email with more of an automated kind of set of follow-ups afterward. Um, so it, it comes more upfront, not through the rest of the campaign or the sequence.
0: All right, so it's neither fully personalized nor fully automated. Like you have to switch between the two somewhere in your process.
1: Exactly, like if you're, if you're somewhere in between very small named account list and very large transactional sale, your process is going to fall somewhere in between there as well.
0: All right, okay. And um, also, you know, like cold emails have been used and abused since time immemorial. over Do you think they still work or do sales reps need to start looking at other, uh, you know, media, mediums or avenues of communication, like such as LinkedIn or Slack communities where I guess, you know, the prospects hang out?
1: Yeah. Well, it should never be used in isolation and you should never use another channel instead of email, right? You want to use multiple channels in sync, reinforcing a consistent message that this is somebody that. One, you would like to talk to because you have a, a very genuine reason you can help. And two, you're allowing that prospect to select the way in which they want to respond to you. So for example, um, I, I get a ton of messages on LinkedIn and I get a lot of DMs. And it's mm-hmm. very hard for me to actually track and organize things. It's great for kind of social conversations and connections and, and establishing a you know face and a name and a voice and, you know, great. Yeah. But if this relates to something that I need to schedule time for, fit into my calendar, maybe bring uh, my co-founder or another team member into, I'm going to reply to you on email because that's how I manage those types of tasks. Um, so it just gives the preference to the prospects so that they can select the channel um, that is best for them. It fits their personality, their work style, and so on.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So what are some metrics that, you know, sales managers need to track for their team and that sales steps need to track at an individual level?
1: So a way that I think about metrics that is a little different from, I don't know, perhaps some teams is uh, momentum. Mm -hmm. And momentum, especially as you're doing kind of larger deals is important because it's the way in which you overcome just like the this, this status quo, the same old, same old, right? So momentum is, think about the physics principle. I'll give you kind of like, you know, maybe it's a little nerdy right here, but in physics, momentum is always a product of two different things, mass and velocity. So mass talks about like the weight um, of something and the center of, of gravity. Now, mass in the context of sales is the decision-making weight. Um, Are you selling to an executive level or to an analyst or manager level? Obviously, the higher up the hierarchy you go, the more mass or weight behind the decision you're going to generate. Now, the second piece of that is velocity. And in physics, it refers to speed and direction. Mm. So in a high-velocity deal... Buyers are engaging in a greater number of conversations and they're moving down the funnel in less time. So they're moving faster. So you put all those things together. uh, A metric to think about is deal momentum, which is the level of title you're engaging times the number of interactions you have with that title times their stage in the pipeline. So the further down the pipeline, the more qualified they become um, divided by weeks. And this is like your typical like time and cycle. So to give you an example, if you're talking with a CEO multiple yeah. times per week and they are advancing stages inside of two weeks, you are generating a ton of momentum as compared to a deal where you're only interacting with a manager level title. Yeah. You exchange maybe one message or call every other week. They're very early in your pipeline. And it's taken you almost, um, let's say two months to get to that point, right? Very low, very minimal mm-hmm. momentum inside of that deal.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And that may- brings me to my next question. So how do you get that uh, you know, CEO or executor to talk to you? I mean, they're so high up. So how do you snag a meeting with them? You always start at the lower level right when you start prospecting. So how do you rise up the ranks and get to that level?
1: Um, well, that's a, it's also a choice. You don't okay. have to start at the lower level um, inside of the company to begin your prospecting. Now you, you mm-hmm. can, and it can be helpful if you need some kind of first and initial conversations to form a point of view okay. on how you can actually help the company and what that executive's priority is. But you can also start by selling directly to an executive
0: mm-hmm. by doing
1: things like, maybe you're listening to po- past podcasts where they were talking about the company, things that are top of mind for them, an Mm. earnings call, something that they have shared, what is relevant and what matters to them. And if you know, and you have a point of view on how you can help them, then great, reach out and engage with them directly, while also engaging with other members um, in their organization. So you can do both. both. You can start there. I'm also happy to say and kind of talk from the perspective of, okay, if you don't have um, an executive in the deal early on, hmm. I can kind of go back through some of the, well, the buyer enablement principles, right? Yeah. That we were talking about of building a champion and then equipping them with a message.
0: So I have one last question about buyer uh, enablement. So, what kind of profiles do you target uh, for champions? Like, like, what level of the hierarchy are, are they at usually? Like, are they the lower level or middle management? Obviously, I don't think an executive can be a champion, but I mean, if there are exceptions, um, Maybe you could elaborate on that, but at what level are they usually in an organization?
1: Yeah, well that's um, that's actually a good it's a good question and often a misconception that the executive <laughs> okay. isn't the champion. You need somebody okay. else to be. Um, the minimum criteria um, for a champion is influence. They have to be able to change or um, put some weight behind the direction of the decision. So they may not be the one executing it, but they have to be able to help people think it a way that aligns with the deal. And that is certainly something that an executive can do. So they meet that kind of minimum right. bar of influence, uh, you know, of course. And it'll be a little different as far as kind of other titles go, because sometimes it doesn't always relate to a title. You know, it could be mm. there is an individual contributor, let's say, an account executive, who has been with the organization. For five years, they're the longest tenured rep. They um, are consistently above quota and mm. how they talk about tooling and what they need to succeed in the sales organization um, can change the, the direction of how leadership or sales enablement and so on, how they invest in new technology. Right. So that could be misleading because the account executive, you would say, well, an individual contributor, they're not in management. Can they really influence a decision? And in this particular case, they could.
0: Okay, so there's this distinction, right? Like we sometimes sell to the user, but, um, you know, the person who's who has purchase authority is usually the executive. So which do you think is better to target? Like the user will actually be using the product or uh, someone with purchase authority who would make a better influencer?
1: Yeah. So they are most times, so this is the most common profile. Okay. They are close enough to the workflow to know the problem in detail, mm-hmm. but they are far enough away that they have reach and can influence others
0: okay. who will be signing
1: the contract. And oh. so it's a little bit of a hybrid. It's a happy medium.
0: <laughs> okay. Happy medium. That's a good dumb. guess. All right. Uh, So Nate, uh, this is my final question to you. We are almost at the end of our session. So what are some books or podcasts or newsletters that you recommend to our listeners?
1: Yeah. So one of the um, books that I I recently read that I think is a great one is called Think Again by Adam Grant. And it's a good way to um, just think about effective conversations that help people consider new ideas or different points of view podcasts, uh, that I really love ones that I find myself uh, listening to, um, 20 VC is a favorite of mine. Um, there are all sorts of topics that are, that are covered, um, in startups. Okay. The other one that I listen, I find myself listening to regularly is in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's put out by a group called first round capital. And again, all different types of topics, um, that go into not just kind of what to do, but how to, uh, do different practices as it relates to growing and building companies.
0: Awesome. All right. So, okay. I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, thank you, Nate, for those enormously helpful insights on what buyer enablement is and how, um you know, companies or organizations can implement it for themselves. And I'm sure they'll get cracking on it because, yeah, as you said, it's been extremely useful. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in today. We'll be doing many more of these podcasts with more such tellers, sales leaders from around the globe. So stay tuned into our upcoming episodes. We are on Apple, Spotify, Google, and also Stitcher. Subscribe to get notified when a new episode is out. Please leave us a review if you're on Apple. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Bye. And thank you, Ned, once again for being here. It was great talking to you.
1: Well, thanks again for having me and for listening, everybody. Awesome. Thank you. Bye.